This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to episode 81 of the Keith Law Show. I'm your host, Keith Law. I will be joined today by Oliver Berkman, the author of multiple books, including the brand new 4,000 Weeks Time Management for Mortals, a self-help book, I would say, for rational people. And certainly something that, uh, one, dovetailed with kind of my own, some of my own beliefs on time management, but also from which I took a lot of, I would say, really valuable lessons. And after I read it, I uh, really wanted to have Oliver on my show to discuss it. I think his work is tremendous. Those of you who are subscribers to The Athletic have seen a few pieces from me recently breaking down the free agent signings of Noah Syndergaard and Eduardo Rodriguez. I will continue to break down major signings, at least where players are changing teams, as well as trades of significance as they occur. Of course, we may have a lockout in December, so that will probably pause those. I have other content planned for that time period, at least. And those of you who follow me for board game work, I will continue doing weekly reviews for Paste Magazine at least through Christmas. I will also do a year-end wrap-up for them uh, with the best games of 2021. I am working on the Ars Technica Holiday Gift Guide, uh, again, for tabletop games. That will come out at some point in early December. And over on my own personal site, The Dish, which you can find at meadowparty.com blog, I updated my ranking, which I do every year, of my 100 favorite board games of all time. I probably did more to move the rankings around, to actually change the rankings this year. I used a little engine to do some pairwise comparisons and plugged in the games in chunks rather than doing all 100 at a time. I think that would have been a few thousand comparisons. Uh, but did do that to try to see, hey, maybe I... Maybe my opinions on some games have changed more than I realized, and it turned out it had. So you will see. Uh, those of you who read it every year may notice some pretty significant changes. I hope you find those posts useful. Feel free to leave comments under that post, especially if you have questions or would like some recommendations of other games. With the holidays around the corner, I also want to remind everyone I have two books out. The Inside Game and Smart Baseball, both now available in paperback from William F. Morrow. You can find them anywhere fine books are sold. I always recommend bookshop.org if you do not have an independent bookstore near you to support. My guest today is author and journalist Oliver Berkman. He is the author of the recent wonderful book, uh, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals, as well as two earlier books, The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking, which I also greatly enjoyed, and Help how to become slightly happier and get a bit more done. You can follow him on Twitter at Oliver Berkman, B-U-R-K-E-M-A-N. Oliver, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much for the invitation. So uh, for folks who haven't figured it out from the subtitle, 4,000 Weeks 
is a reference to roughly the average lifespan of somebody at least living in the developed world. Yeah. Um, we only have 4,000 weeks on this planet, and we probably should do a better job of, of the time that we have, although that means mean different things to different people. So first, Oliver, why so morbid? <laughs> well, I don't think it's morbid at all, of course, but I do confess to having a mindset that um, sometimes has been called morbid. I think a better word is something like defensive pessimism or realism. I'd like something more flattering than morbid. But I think that <laughs> what it ultimately is about, and I do think this is probably a connecting line through other stuff that I've written, is it's about how liberating it is to stop trying to deny reality. It's about seeing how much effort we put in to, uh, and how much time we waste, quite frankly, trying not to feel the feelings associated with how things actually are. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's really liberating, I think, in the end, and we can talk about that more. But so I don't think it's morbid at all. It's um, it's bracing. It's like, you know, it's like getting in a cold shower. It's not necessarily pleasant at first, but you're sort of glad you did it. <laughs> I, I will agree. It struck me as morbid at first reading it, but then it's sort of, well, I mean, it is what it is, right? We are not immortal. Our time here is not infinite. Um, and therefore pretending it is infinite, which I think a lot of people do, actually. And I probably thought that beforehand, but then reading the book, it's, oh, yeah, most of us live like we're going to be here forever, or at least for some some indeterminately long time that is beyond our conception when, no, that's clearly not true. And I don't know when you, it seemed like you were writing the book maybe as the pandemic was happening, but most of us have lost people kind of before their times, so to speak, which to me only sort of hammered home, hey, I, I want to do more now. I want to be happier now. I don't want to postpone happiness or postpone activities till some point in the, oh, after I retire, oh, after the kids are in college. Yeah. Hey, what if, what if that never comes for me? <laughs> right, right. I think the pandemic has made a big difference. I sort of began this whole project before the pandemic, but mm -hmm. through, then I sort of integrated some thinking about the pandemic and some reporting into the last third of the book and i think you know through no strategizing of my own it has ended up being sort of timely in that in that way and um, people are sort of seeing with fresh eyes a little bit um how they've been using their time and this yes this notion of sort of constantly postponing what really counts to some time that never arrives because you're going to first of all get your life sorted out or you're going to first of all you know get all sorts of things out of the way and and, and understanding how those things are never going to be out of the way. That's an infinite. That's an infinite stream. So at some point, you just got to decide to do the things you want to do <laughs> at the same time. Yeah. So um, let's get into kind of the nuts and bolts of the book. So this is a time management book, but it's also kind of not a time management book. And I was trying to find a pithy way to summarize your approach to time management. At first, I just wrote down what your approach to time management is just don't. But that's not really quite true. You do actually have many tips for time management. It is more that they run very counter to the modern idea of time management and most time management books and podcasts. I mean, there's this whole cottage industry about how to better manage your time. Oh, yeah. um, but most of those are about how to do more in the same amount of time that you have. And I think that's where you really push back. And that's part of what makes the book so effective too. But it's contrary to almost all the messaging that we get, certainly those of us in the workforce, um, or even many students. Um, the message no is no, 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 you need to manage yourself, but you need to organize better. You need to buy this, buy this product. That's my favorite one. If right. you buy this neat little journal, book, whatever, it'll solve all your problems. Pro tip, 
they don't. They don't <laughs> solve any problems. And in my experience, the one or two of those things I've bought actually made more problems. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think you're right. And I, uh, this is, as always, I think, with books like this, um, whether the author admits it or not, this was definitely like a book of the advice I needed to hear yeah. uh, and, and the, the issues that I struggle with, though I think I've made some made some headway. Um, I think what I'm really anxious to try, try to specify is this idea that I think that most of our attempts, most of those attempts to become more productive, to manage our time in the way that you refer to, the sort of mainstream stuff, it's all in the service of this kind of idea that might be articulated differently for different people. It might be unconscious entirely in some people, but it's this idea, I've already mentioned it a bit, right? That there is going to come a state when you are finally the master of your time, that you are in control of stuff, that um, you are no longer just a little sort of raft on the choppy <laughs> waters of events where anything might happen at any moment, you know, shark attacks, and and that you are that you have sort of like got things in working order. And after that, it's a smooth, it's going to be a smooth ride because you're going to finally have your systems in place. And I think what I want to try to show uh, at the sort of most philosophical level here, we can talk happily about the more sort of practical stuff is that this is an, ultimately this is a desire to like cheat death. It's, an, it's a desire to get outside of the conditions that define reality for every human, which is you mm -hmm. don't get to control what's coming next. You don't get to do all the things that feel like they matter. You don't get to avoid disappointing some people or making hard choices or letting go of certain ambitions because we are these strange creatures who can have infinite goals and dreams or, or feel infinite amounts of obligations and duties. And yet here we are with extremely non-infinite amount of, of time. So it sort of follows from that, that um, struggling to sort of win the battle with time in that existential way that's never going to happen time's always going to win and so there's a sort of there's a much more relaxed way of doing things which is to sort of accept the terms of the of the game <laughs> and then try to play it as well as you can i guess well there's a story you give in the book about a professor at um some small school in cambridge massachusetts i forget the name of it but jennifer roberts um her art lesson um where she says, so it's about allowing things to take the time that they take. That's your yeah. summary of it. Can you, I, I would love for you to just tell the, the briefly what that art lesson is, because I have to admit, reading that made me feel physically uncomfortable. Yeah. Like, I don't know that I could do this. <laughs> and I went to that school and right. I'm like, I failed that class. I would absolutely have failed. Or that assignment, at least. That's, um, that's uh, yeah, that, this is why everyone should do it. So, yeah, Jennifer <laughs> Roberts is an, is an art historian at a little college in the Boston area who um, has all her students, uh, or incoming students, go and do this exercise where they're asked to select a um, painting or a sculpture um, in, the, in the area and go and, and look at it for three hours straight. Uh, I think she does say you're allowed to take bathroom breaks because it would be kind of inhumane to say that you couldn't but apart from that like you're not allowed to do anything else you can take notes but you can't not be looking at the painting looking at the sculpture and i went to do this as well as to interview her and looked at a painting by degas that was in the harvard art museum and mm -hmm. um yeah for the first hour of this you spend it's it's agonizing you sense sit there kind of the fact that you have put yourself voluntarily in a situation where you don't get to sort of force the pace of reality and I mean, this is why I've always hated art galleries, right? I realize now it's like, there's this kind of sense <laughs> that you're supposed to go more slowly. And that if you hurry around them, you're a Philistine. Mm -hmm. if, you, right. if you're a real sort of really engaging with it, you're gonna 
But all that ends up happening with me in art galleries, therefore, is that you end up sort of waiting until it's okay to move on to the next right. painting. <laughs> and what she's hoping to show people, and this is this goes way beyond art history, I think it's important to say that, right? Is that um, we are so conditioned now, I think it's human anyway, but I think it's especially now to, um, in an accelerated, accelerating culture, we're so conditioned to be able to do more by going faster, that when you come across these things that just take the time they take to really see a painting, for example, um, the temptation is to just glance at it and think that you've seen it. And so you need these kind of, she thinks her students need this artificial framework in place that says, no, you can't get up for three hours. And the amazing truth uh, in the case of the painting is that you do literally, not metaphorically, like you literally see things in the painting about mm. an hour in or an hour and a half in that you had not noticed before, or if you do, if you're me. Um, and that's an extraordinary experience, but I think it isn't just about art appreciation, right? It's this idea that there are all sorts of, of, of things in, in business, in relationships, uh, reading, um, that, that, that just take the time that they take. You can maybe hurry them a little bit, but you can't decide how fast they're going to go. And so if you can cultivate patience, which I think is basically the ability to tolerate that antsy feeling that you mm -hmm. wanted to go faster, that's like a kind of a superpower because it, it, it gives you an ability to get a kind of purchase on the world. And, you know, just to be cynical about it, even, you know, lots of this is to do with living fulfilling and meaningful life, but even just like getting ahead at work. I think if you can, I think if you have the power to not always be hurrying, that, that can cash out in some very straightforward benefits in the, in the sort of in competitive spaces like, like workplaces, because you can actually, you're not, you're, it, it's kind of subversive, right? The, the ability mm -hmm. to, to not just try to make things go as fast as possible and, and as a result to sort of fail to engage with them and to miss them. One of the consistent themes in the book is this idea of using time well, which I think most people would say, why do I need three hours to look at one painting? Like <laughs> I could, I mean, I confess when I went to the Uffizi in Florence, that's 20 something years ago it was a long time ago I was a much younger man back then <laughs> I'm pretty sure I got through the whole museum in less than three hours never yep. mind looking at one painting for three straight hours and to me that idea seems like the antithesis most people and this is our sort of late stage capitalist brains working most people would say that is not using time well but if I really kind of feel get the point of your of the whole book it is that that idea of using time well has just poisoned our relationship with time that you one you can't use time you don't shouldn't treat it like that like we treat basically most other goods mm -hmm. in our lives is not that sort of good um and it's certainly not a renewable resource right but also that it 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 changes the whole mindset where you can't do that like that and i'm i'm one of those people right i i absolutely see that and if you told me to sit there i mean my job is to watch baseball games and i love baseball it's a three hour experience and there's some dead time in them. And as soon as there's dead time, what am I doing? I'm pulling out my phone or I'm pulling out a book. I generally bring a book because I at least, because I really, really love reading and view that as a better use of my time, something more enjoyable and less, I don't know, it's going to scramble my brain less maybe right, than right. futzing around on the cell phone. But, you know, sort of in a roundabout way back to what my question was, is that, do you agree with that, that that's, that this, we've just got the wrong idea of how we use time? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the core of the problem isn't it is that is this idea that 
when you let the idea of using time well become entirely future focused. So it's entirely to do with, and maybe this is built into the concept of use, right? That, that there's some way you're headed, um, a project you're launching, a creative project work you're wanting to finish or an article you're writing or whatever, you know, those are all examples picked from like my life, but people mm -hmm. have all sorts of life projects like this. And, and the idea is that best use of time is the one that gets you there most uh, in the best or fastest way. But if you overinvest in that, as our culture does, and as our economy pushes us to, right, eventually it sort of vacates the value from the moment of life itself. It, it makes it impossible to ever find fulfillment in the present because the whole question you're asking all the time is, am I using this hour the most optimal way to sort of get somewhere? Um, and I think we do all recognize moments in our lives where we're not doing that for almost mm -hmm. everybody, you know, where we are sort of off the clock and there is something about what we're doing in that moment that, um, that, that is valuable in itself. I'm interested to hear you talk about your attitude during baseball games. Cause I always think that, um, you know, committed sport spectators of sports are, are a really fascinating example of this. Cause I'm not one. And I've mm -hmm. been to a couple of baseball games in my entire life and been struck by the the patience required and never mind cricket goodness me but yeah. um <laughs> uh you know so uh, it makes sort of you know 90 minute soccer games seem seem uh zippy by comparison even when it's not an exciting one so i think you know we do all there are people who well i guess all of us know what it is to be absorbed in something for its own sake not only heading to some outcome but maybe in the case of baseball you have to be like a committed fan and not be using it as part of your professional activities right maybe that's mm -hmm. maybe that undermines it for you because yeah. it has to be part of a sort of a a future oriented project i don't know um yeah i think we could all do with at least something in our lives that we're doing for the present moment value of it yeah my uh I recently married. My in-laws are Welsh, and uh, my father-in-law is a massive rugby fan, particularly Welsh rugby, of course. And I will say, I have found that much easier to get into. First of all, the set of rules is not, it, it's not cricket or baseball. It was fairly easy, right? They right. just sort of bang into each other and then <laughs> move the ball. And Okay, I get this. Yeah. But also, it doesn't stop. And so I have found myself lulled much more into the flow of the activity. Right. It is not presenting me with many opportunities. The, the thing with baseball is, you have these two minute, two and a half minute breaks between each half inning. So there is lots of time. To me, that's almost like, ding, okay, go do something else, right? right? But yeah, in yeah, rugby, yeah, yeah. you really just have the one break and that's when yeah. everyone goes get another beer or something. And yeah. that's pretty, and then all of a sudden you're back at it and they're just beating the heck out of each other. And I have found that I'm better, like I actually really enjoy rugby for that. It is unlike a lot of the major sports I grew up with here in the United States, at yeah. least, all have those breaks. Even hockey, which is I, which I enjoy at least in person because it's very fast, there's still lots of stoppages. But with rugby, it's like I can get more into the flow and it's probably of my, and it's also not work. Right. So probably of my sporting spectator experiences, the one that maybe now that I think about it sort of best makes use of some of the principles in this book where I'm just in it. I just, it takes the time it takes and I don't have to be doing six other things right. at the same time, which um, I think is probably a way of me telling everyone to just go root for Welsh rugby. <laughs> yeah, there's a kind of a surrender involved. It's kind, there's a kind of a recognition that you're not the that you're not sort of the air traffic controller of all experience, which I mean, I guess as any sport spectator, you're by definition not the controller of, of what you're watching. But but there's a sort of a 
there's something very useful in 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 realizing that 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 level of control over the way events unfold is is not open to us. I think. Yes. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, so you talk a little bit about, um, inbox zero, which I think you think is, is if I interpret correctly, you think is sort of like evil incarnate, right? This whole idea, well, it's not incarnate. Yeah, it depends, depends on how you define it, but yes. yes. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, it's not good, right? And I have <laughs> given up on this. I, that was actually probably of all the things in the book, the one that I most immediately said, yes, yes, finally, <laughs> somebody is saying this because the volume of inbound emails I get just exceeds my capacity to respond right. and and I feel very guilty about it because I absolutely you know some of this is just my upbringing and just my desire to like be nice to people yep. is every email should get a response and I it has taken me years to get to the point where I can say this is unsolicited this isn't something I have to do for my job <laughs> and I can just let it go and yeah. I I still feel a little bit guilty. I admit, I absolutely feel a touch guilty about it. But you, um, you just basically gave me a permission slip and said, "No, no, no, this is fine. You can do this. You don't have to answer it. Don't have to answer every email." And I would contrast what I do with my wife, who's a college professor, where she really does try to answer just about all of her emails and most of them in a timely fashion. And I see how much time it ends up consuming. It just becomes a loop, right? You answer the email, it generates three more emails, which generates some more yeah. work, and I just. I can't, if I do that, I won't get my job done. I, I, I would run out of time, which to me seems to defeat the purpose of time management. Yeah, no, totally, totally. I, I, yeah, I think that the, the important point here is not so much whether you try to keep your inbox empty or not, because there are ways of doing inbox zero. I think Merlin Mann, who coined this originally, had a pretty sensible way of approaching it. There are ways of doing that that are consistent with uh, what you're saying here. They just involve you know, mass deleting lots of emails instead of responding yeah. to them and your inbox <laughs> will be at zero. Um, yeah. But the point is just, to, is just to see that the trade-offs are and the choices are already being made anyway, right? So um, there might be somebody listening to this who was thinking like, well, it's okay when you're talking about people in a sort of audience-based work, like both me and you, you're getting a lot mm -hmm. of unsolicited stuff. It will be nice to be able to um, respond to it all, but we just can't if we're going to keep actually creating the things that make the whole thing be have any point in the first place and someone might say well that's not my situation i'm talking about inside a corporation where if i don't reply to all the emails from certain people in the company like i'm not meeting my job description yeah. to which the answer then again is right yes it's all just trade-offs and you mm -hmm. might decide that spending six or seven hours of your day every day answering emails legitimately was the best trade-off to make um mm -hmm. that would depend on your circumstance 
or you might decide that like you know if you're a sort of someone with a kind of incredibly senior status and position that you never need to answer a single email you could spend 10 minutes a week right it's just seeing that this is an infinite supply effectively mm. certainly relative to our capacities it's like it's always going to exceed our capacities mm -hmm. so if you do choose to try to stay on top of it all there's something else you're going to be choosing not to attend to and mm -hmm. like let's at least make those decisions consciously and see that it's going on and then yeah my experience too is that you then at least you begin to explore some like one there are sort of edges of that realm of incoming email where you don't feel so bad um not responding to them if, it, if it's clear that somebody has put like less than 10 seconds uh, effort into emailing me then i do not feel obliged to put lots more than 10 seconds into yes. uh responding um dear it, mr barkman right 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 and then <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly and then also <laughs> and then i'm afraid the other time is when people sort of don't i just there are certain emails where i'm just completely stumped it's like i have no idea how i could respond to it other than agreeing to something that would take hours of my time and i mm. should probably come up with better ways of being polite in that situation but anyway all of these is just to say it's just seeing that this is a, 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 an infinite supply as you say it's not only infinite but it gets um more uh not more infinite but more <laughs> it accelerates yeah. as it would be the right way to put it the input accelerates the more that you actually do become efficient at answering it right yes so so the punishment for getting really good at processing your email is to get much much more email in the same periods of time and you know yeah, once you see that that's what it is, I think it's a lot easier to step away without having answered everything because something else, either in your work or outside of your work, in your family life, whatever it might be, is actually how you want to spend that portion of your limited time on the planet. Mm -hmm. well, I feel like email and social media are... They, they all sort of work the same way in terms of the demands they place on our attention. It's sort of like a you know, fungus that just sort of attaches to us <laughs> and just sucks, right? This is not symbiotic here, right? This is a parasitic relationship. <laughs> and you mentioned yourself as being in recovery from Twitter, which is a state to which I aspire. I have been using Twitter less. Um, you know, one, I just find the environment on there to be increasingly toxic. But also, it is another, it is like email where simply responding to something just generates more responses and you could spend, I could truly spend entire days right. just doing things on Twitter. And so I've just made some simple behavioral changes myself. I've logged out of Twitter on my phone. If I want to tweet, I have to be in front of the computer, um, which is a huge limiter, which is great. But also I used to just keep a tab open for Twitter because I could always check and scroll. Oh, is there any news? Did anything happen in baseball that I need to know about? And that's stupid. I was lying to myself, obviously, because it was just, it becomes the distraction. So even this morning, I was a guest on a podcast he tweeted the link, I went, retweeted it, said, hey, this was a lot of fun, and closed the tab, and that's it. And I won't look at it again until at least tonight, maybe not until tomorrow. And so it's very freeing. For yeah. the first couple of days I did, that was very weird, right? Because you just get the Twitter shakes, right? I need to yeah. check the Twitter. But now it's, oh, wait. Not only do I feel like I have more time, but I feel like I got a portion of my brain back. And I can, yeah. pay, it's not just time, but it's attention. I got yeah. some attention back. And I feel like that was, for me at least, it was l less than a, a, a function of not having enough hours in the day, but not having enough attention to do things, the things that really matter to me to make better use of my time. So, and I, my interpretation is that you've, you've, you're a little further along this path than well, I Well, yeah, I mean, I feel a bit guilty talking about myself being 
recovering because you know people who are in recovery from addictions it usually means that they're not using the addictive substance right. at you're all. still there <laughs> right i and saw I, it i am not i'm not failing to use the addictive <laughs> substance whatsoever i'm in you know it's a, a moderation thing but um yeah i think what really struck me and i write about this in the book was that you know you would think that if you spent an hour on social media and all the time you're thinking like oh this is bullshit i know what i should be doing yeah but at the end of that hour you'd say oh, okay i wasted an hour of my time but it's way worse than that because, you know, then I would find myself <laughs> chopping carrots for dinner later on or, you know, at the gym or something. And I would still be having the mentally prosecuting the arguments with the people I'd been, um, you know, yes. I'd seen possibly not even been arguing with myself directly. Right. I'd just seen people saying things that I objected to. And but uh, but. And right, and I'm too much of a coward, or I'm or I'm too sensible. <laughs> you choose how to define it to engage, but then later on, I'm like, this is what I would say that would, yeah. you know, and so, and you can see how this would also work with, uh, you know, different personality. If if you're plugged into social media that's telling you that, um, you know, uh, America's cities are lethally dangerous now, and you probably can't go to the to the store without, um, you know, encountering encountering lethal violence or whatever. You know, if it. it if that is what you're seeing because that you're plugged into those feeds where that is the way to compel people's attention, it's going to alter and probably distort your sense of your mental map of the world that you move through. It's going to affect how you hold yourself in out in the street. Right. So mm -hmm. all, all of which is just to say that for whatever particular value of thing you're interested in, uh, that, that the algorithms learn compels your attention. It, it's yes. going to skew everything about how you just like live, it's not only going to be the fact that you wasted an hour. It's going to sort of m shift you away from focusing on what you want to be focusing on, like t all the rest of the time as well. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of it's worth uh, it's worth seeing that and learning to unhook from it at least a bit. Yeah. So um, listeners who haven't read Four Thousand Weeks yet, obviously, I recommend it very highly. But I also want to emphasize you do have some solutions in here too. You do talk a lot about all the problems, but there's quite a there was quite a bit that I took away that were either things that I just don't do that I have already tried to start in little ways incorporating into my daily habits or things that was like I could see and say, hey, I kind of do that already. Mm. Maybe I'm on the right track. Maybe I shouldn't feel bad about doing that. And there was one section that I just, I loved because I could send it. If anybody asked me, so what's this book about? Your three principles of time, pay yourself first, limit your work in progress and resist middling priorities. I mean, that alone and there obviously there's a lot more text than that in the book. I highly recommend people go actually read. I didn't just give away the whole book, but I read that section. I was like, yes, yes, absolutely. I can take that. That was even not even an entire chapter. It was a good chunk of a chapter. I read that. I said, yes, this makes a ton of sense. And I can do this. That was the best part for me was that right. I can execute this. He's not asking. It's like inbox zero. I look at that. Was, That's never happening. I have to delete my account. For that to happen but these the tips you give the strategies and then some of the specific bits of advice you give are really achievable i would guess for most people there will always be exceptions for most people can do that and say yes i can do that and you can do it piecemeal you could do it in little steps right, to get totally, yourself closer yeah. to the goal yeah and i think that's important i mean i would say uh, and thank you for saying that i mean i think that the most practical thing that i hope is in this book is the shift in perspective right so i hope mm -hmm. that i tend to think people who read books like this, they're smart enough to come up with kind of their own versions of techniques that fit their own lives. What what they may not have seen yet, what I might be able to bring to the party above all, 
is this shift, this slight shifted outlook where you, um, you, you start to see that uh, you've been trying to do all sorts of impossible things with your time uh, at the deepest level. And then once you sort of go through a bit of that and you start to see that you're talking about like how to use your time in the best possible way <laughs> instead of mm -hmm. um, chasing various impossible things. So firstly, yes, then I come up with a few suggestions for how to do that. I also think that people who've sort of somewhat been through, been taken through that shift can probably come up with about a hundred more. Um, they're doable by definition because the shift in perspective is from trying to do something impossible to seeing how freeing and motivating and sort of accomplishment focused it is ultimately to focus on what is possible. Still ambitious, if that's your personality. It doesn't mean you have to just like spend your life doing mediocre things, but but to, to sort of move from this kind of impossible struggle to get on top of everything to this moment where instead you're just going to like prioritize making sure you do do a handful of things that mean the most and live with the fact that you're not going to like clear the decks as well and reach inbox zero as well and all the rest of it. Um, yeah, it's it's doable by by definition. And I think the techniques that I'm that you mentioned there are just sort of ways of holding your feet to the fire a little bit sort of ways of ways of pushing you to to really try to feel this kind of slightly uncomfortable uh, reality uh so limiting your work in progress i won't go on but like you know this idea of <laughs> in one of many different ways obliging yourself like setting a rule that you're only going to focus on a small number of things before moving on to others and making those other things like queue up and wait even though that triggers anxiety right um that's really powerful because it's just a reminder of the way the situation already is anyway in terms of your mm -hmm. limited ability to work on things, but it makes it conscious and it turns it into a bit of a game. And very quickly, if you do that, I think for a few days or weeks, you start to see that you, you get much more done in aggregate anyway. So it meets the original goals of the, of the productivity geek as well as, uh, <laughs> as well as being a calmer way to live. My guest today has been author Oliver Berkman. He is the author of 4,000 Weeks Time Management for Mortals and The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. Both books I greatly enjoyed and highly recommend. You can also follow him on Twitter. He's still there, despite what he says in the book. <laughs> at Oliver Berkman, B-U-R-K-E-M-A-N. Oliver, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. That's all for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. I do want to take a moment to, to express my gratitude to those of you who have listened to the show, stuck with the show, left positive comments and ratings, especially on iTunes. It is uh, really gratifying to, to hear that feedback. And the show does not exist without the listeners. Obviously, uh, it was a long time getting back to a podcast of my own. Many of you were asked for years and really supported me while I tried to get back to that point. And I want you to know that I appreciate all of you uh, who continue to listen on a weekly basis and offer great feedback and share this podcast with other folks who you may have, who you believe may have the same sort of eclectic interests that we do. So thank you all very much. I hope you all have a very safe and happy Thanksgiving. Please take care of yourselves. Don't drink and drive. Obviously, you know my feelings on the pandemic. I hope if you are going to choose to gather with others, and we will be, uh, that you are vaccinated. Everyone at our gathering this year will be vaccinated. Almost all of us will be boosted by that point, in fact. I hope you choose to do the same. Thanks, everyone. Stay safe and have a great holiday.